Psalms. Uh, we've been working through about a seven or eight week series, which is coming to a close this morning here. This will be the last sermon in our series in the book of Psalms. And what we've really tried to do over the course of these uh, seven or eight weeks is to um, address different seasons in the spiritual life of believers, uh, winter, spring, summer, and fall, kind of define what is the chief characteristic of each of those seasons, and then find a psalm that really identifies with that season of life. The psalmist is writing and he's expressing his emotion in this season of life that he finds himself in. And then we've been taking these psalms and trying to apply them uh, to, to our situations and the seasons that we find ourselves in. And one of the things that I've just really enjoyed about this series, I'm getting to preach some, but also the majority of it getting to listen is that in each season, except for summer, because we only had one sermon in summer, we've had two different people preaching out of the same season. So uh, in winter, it was Steve and Dwayne. Uh, in spring, it was myself and Steve. And then Dwayne preached one on summer. And then Dwayne preached one on fall. And I'll be preaching one on fall. I really enjoy that. And I think that it's very beneficial because we get different perspectives on the season and then also on the psalm that we choose and, and how we break it down, there's, there's different perspectives there. I think that it hits uh, more of us who are in any one of these individual seasons. And so I hope that throughout this series you have found it to be very helpful as well for whatever season you are going through at this point in your life. Um, the, the, the message this morning has been titled, A Psalm for a Season of Success. Uh, Psalm 30, so if you'd like to open your Bible there, we'll read there shortly. Um, and we're going to be closing out here in a season of fall, in a season of fall. As Dwayne said last week, fall is a season of harvest. Uh, when you look at the life of a fruit tree, um, fall is that season where the tree experiences the reward of persevering through all of the other seasons. We see that fruit come to bear. And in our spiritual lives, fall is a season where we see the fruit of our labor for God. It is a season of abundance, a season of rejoicing and thanksgiving. It is a season marked by prosperity and success. Now with a season of success, prosperity and blessing comes a great temptation to forget the giver of the harvest. When we find ourselves in these seasons of fall and these seasons of prosperity and abundance, we have a great danger of falling into forgetting the giver of our prosperity, the giver of our success. And as we open up Psalm 30, we'll actually see that this is kind of where David finds himself. He finds himself in, a, in the midst of a season of fall, in the midst of a season of prosperity, and he finds himself forgetting the giver of it. And we see the consequence that falls upon David uh, in the midst of that um, forgetting God. And so what, what I want to do this morning is to simply uh, see what David records here about his own life and his own experience, and then to seek to understand what our response should be and should not be uh, to, being, uh, to experiencing a season of fall that God has placed us in. And you can see here on the outline... Um, if you have your bulletin insert, you can take that out. And uh, the first thing we'll be looking at is uh, the rejoicing after a season of suffering that David records. Um, the second is the reason. He tells us why this suffering, this season of suffering occurred. 
And then the last is the response to this season of suffering. Now, it's at this point that you might be a little bit confused uh, when the entire outline is geared around a season of suffering, but yet we're talking about fall. We're talking about a season of rejoicing and thanksgiving and prosperity and success. So why does the entire psalm take the form, uh, or at least is geared around, a season of suffering? Um, what I want to do is just address very quickly here the, the superscription to the psalm, and that should be at the top right before the first verse. It says, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Uh, and this could be uh, translated as well, the dedication of the house. Some people believe that David wrote this psalm in anticipation for the temple being built since he never saw it. His son Solomon built it after he had already died. Other people believe that David wrote this psalm when God blessed him with his physical house, his, his kingdom. Um, but regardless of which one it is, I think that the point here is that we can see is that David is writing this psalm in the midst of a season of success in the midst of a season of blessing from God at the dedication of either his house or at the dedication of the temple, we see that David is writing from a season of prosperity. And that's gonna have huge ramifications for how we understand this psalm. So what I wanna do is just unpack it now and then bring it back to, in the application at the very end, I'm gonna show you how this psalm fits into a season of fall how it fits into a season of prosperity and success. So if you haven't turned there already, please turn to Psalm 30, and I'm going to read uh, the text, and then we'll pray as usual, and we'll dive in. A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Father, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that your spirit would come and meet us in this place and would accomplish in each one of us uh, what you have prepared for your word to accomplish. I pray that you would teach us to be humble before you, that you would teach us that you are the giver of all success and prosperity and fruit that we bear, and that we would turn back to you rightful praise. I pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. 
So like any good psalm, uh, David begins actually uh, at the end of his experience. He begins by recounting the way that the Lord had delivered him from uh, a specific illness. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, I think that that's, I mean, I'm not a songwriter, so I can't say this for sure. I was just kind of thinking about it. But that's kind of the way I think that most songs come to be is that um, we're not necessarily sitting down thinking of some specific thing. Uh, you know, it usually comes as, as a form of our emotion exploding from within us. And, you know, we're kind of just rejoicing and, and we see songs coming from from this type of uh, an understanding. And so it makes sense that the psalm wouldn't follow logically, right? It doesn't follow in terms of the way that things actually happen. David here begins at the end with the rejoicing after a season of suffering, and then he moves into talking about why it happened in the first place. So just in terms of structure, I think that's helpful to understand. So David says here, Uh, In verse one, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. So David is saying, I will extol you, I will lift up your name, I will praise you, for you have drawn me up. Is this figurative, uh, this visual picture that David is giving us, this this you have drawn me up is supposed to give us a, a picture of water being drawn out of a well. And it really speaks to the situation that David found himself in with what will be revealed to us as likely a physical illness that he was suffering from. Uh, This word picture that David is using here communicates David's need for God. Just as water sits helplessly at the bottom of a well until someone comes and draws it out, so David was helplessly in need of God's aid in this specific situation in his life. He couldn't help himself. There was no one else who could meet his need but God alone. God drew him up as one draws water up out of a well. And this action of God drawing David up kept his foes from being able to rejoice over him. Had God not delivered David, he would have been mocked by his enemies. Now David goes on to reveal to us likely what this situation entailed and how severe it actually was. In verse 2 he says, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. Now, I think that it's most likely that this healing that David experienced was from a physical ailment that he had, a physical illness that he had. And and part of that, I think, is because of uh, the context of his enemies rejoicing over him. I think that they would have rejoiced over him had he died. And then also what comes in verse 3, I think that David reveals that this was a physical illness that he was dealing with. And that could be, you know, some interpreters take it as a spiritual illness But I think that the psalm, as it unfolds, shows it to be physical. And so verse 3, he says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Now these two words that David uses, Sheol and the pit, I think uh, when you use, when, when the Hebrew Sheol actually meant the grave, the place of the dead, where when somebody died, this is where they went. They went to Sheol. And this is specifically uh, mentioned as well in the term pit, going down to the pit. So I think that what David is saying here is that he was struggling with a physical illness. It was a life-threatening illness. He's telling us that it was physical, but also the severity of it, that this wasn't a common cold that God had healed him from. This was a life 
life-threatening sickness. God, you delivered my soul from going down to the pit, from going down to the grave. You delivered me from death. And so David, as he is, he's rejoicing here for God's deliverance of him when he was in this season of suffering. And as we turn to verse four, he actually commands the congregation to rejoice with him. And he begins to reveal to us why we should rejoice with him. He says, sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Why? For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That is why he is calling the saints to worship with him. Because God's anger is but for a moment, but his joy or his favor is for a lifetime. Why does David say that that's why, in light of his deliverance, why does he say that that's why the congregation should praise? You see, what David is doing here is he's associating the suffering that he went through to God's anger at him for something that David had done. And then also the joy in God's deliverance of him from that illness. And what David is doing by telling the, uh, telling the congregation to join in rejoicing to God and singing praises to him about this is, first, is obviously that we should rejoice at God delivering our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Of course we should join in that rejoicing. But also David is saying that this isn't only my experience. Although I'm recording my specific experience of God's anger and then his deliverance, This is the experience of all of God's children. And as we'll see when we come to the second point, this was God disciplining David through this illness that threatened his life. And so David is saying, this is what God does for all of his children. And extending this praise to the congregation as well. And this is what the, the writer of Hebrews says. He testifies to the reality of this. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Hebrews 12, 6. And so David is saying, This is all of our experience. We all identify with this as God's children, and we should all pour forth praise for this discipline and this deliverance that he has given to us. Now two things must be said specifically in reference to this Hebrews passage in regards to God's discipline. Uh, The first is that God only disciplines his children. Uh, Hebrews again says, uh, he chastises every son whom he receives. God does not discipline the world but only those who have been adopted into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. It is upon believing in Jesus that, we begin, that God begins to relate to us as a father would to his son or as a father would to his daughter in loving discipline. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you might be thinking, well, I don't really want God's discipline because that sounds pretty crappy to me what David was suffering through. But let me show you why, secondly, it is a mark of God's love toward his people 
that he disciplines them. That's the second thing we see in the Hebrews passage. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines the one he loves. At this point, you might be feeling a little uncomfortable with what I'm saying. Wait a second. God disciplined David by allowing him to become ill to the point of death. How in the world is that loving? How is that loving of God to do that to David? I think it's very hard for us to grasp the loving aspect of God's discipline for us because we have a very man-centered understanding of love. We have a very materialistic understanding of love that has to do with this world, with this body, with this health, with this prosperity. It all is down here. We don't see eternally. We don't see the spiritual when we're thinking about love, but that's what God's ultimate desire is for us, is not for the physical, but for the spiritual. You see, we have been trained by our culture to believe that suffering and love are complete polar opposites, and that they have nothing to do with each other. That if if somebody's going to inflict suffering on somebody, in no way, shape, or form can that ever be said to be love, or to be loving of them. It's because we misunderstand what love actually is. And then we apply it to God and we say, God, if the only way I'm gonna consider that you love me is if you give me stuff, if you give me good health, if you make me prosper, only good things will I accept from your hand, things that I perceive to be good. But you see, the, the loving nature of the Father's discipline is found in the fact that though we have tasted of his grace and continue to sin, He does not make us orphans once more. You see, God accepts us as his children upon faith in Jesus Christ, and then we continue to sin against our Father. And God doesn't say, I'm done with you, I'm finished. He doesn't make us orphans again, but rather with much patience, he disciplines us for the ultimate purpose that we might look more like Jesus. You know, think about it in relation, if you're a, a father or a mother, you can see this in the life of your children. If, if Ezra sinned against me, what would be the most loving thing for me to do? Would it be to just completely forsake him and say, I'm finished with you, I'm done, I'm sick and tired of you rebelling against me? No. Or even, it wouldn't be letting him continue in his sin to his own destruction and just ignoring it. No. The most loving thing for me to do would be with much patience, discipline my son and teach him what is honoring to God and what is dishonoring to God. And that might be painful for him, but it will reap a spiritual reward that is far greater than anything we'll experience here in this life. This is the way that God works amongst his children and it's something that we should rejoice in that God would discipline us and not forsake us when we continue to sin against his grace. David, having been brought to praise through remembering God's delivering him of his life-threatening illness, now recalls the reason why God caused him to become ill. He now backtracks and says, okay, let's see, let's see why this happened. In verse six says this, as for me, David speaking, 
I said, in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. I said, in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. This is the reason that this discipline came down on David, is because in his pride, in his prosperity, he began to trust and find security. He said, in what I have, I'll never be moved. In the prosperity and the blessing that I've received, that's where my security lies. This is the sin of self-sufficiency, believing that we are sufficient on our own and need not God's help. This is what caused the discipline of the Lord to come down upon David. Commentator A.A. Anderson says this, in his state of affluence, the psalmist lost sight of the giver of all prosperity. David, in his prosperity, became forgetful of God and began to focus on himself. The very interesting thing about this is actually what comes in verse 7, what David recognizes and realizes. He says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. David acknowledges here that it was God who was the one who gave him his prosperity. But yet, David now has shifted from trusting in God to trusting in the gift that God had given him. Looking to the gift rather than to the giver of that gift. Uh, And David here is revealing, I think, the, the, the slipperiness of this type of pride in our lives and the way that it works itself out in our hearts. At one moment, David realizes that God had given him everything that he was putting his trust in. And at the very next moment, David is glorying not in God, but in himself. I stand firm. I will not be moved on the basis not of God, but on my prosperity. Charles Spurgeon uh, comments on this and applies it to our hearts and says, Is there not much of the same proud stuff in all of our hearts? Let us beware lest the fumes of intoxicating success get into our brains and make fools of us also. That's what happened here. The fumes of intoxicating success got into David's mind and made him a fool. So what are the symptoms of a self-sufficient heart in relation to God? How are we going to figure this out in our own lives whether this is happening or not? Well, very simply defined, I think that what it looks like is that the symptoms of a self-sufficient heart can be simply defined as the neglect of any spiritual discipline that reveals our dependence upon God. So self-sufficient pride in relation to God is saying, I'm not going to do the things that I know reveal that I need God. I'm sufficient in myself. God, I don't need you. So what are some of these things? There's a lack of desire to pursue your relationship with God. This reveals that you do not fully realize how dependent you are upon Him. Secondly, you neglect the reading and the study of the Word of God. I got this on my own, God. I don't need your guidance. I don't need your grace, the grace that you give through the reading and the studying of your Word. I don't need it. I can do it on my own. Even though we don't say that. None of us outrightly say that, but our neglect of these spiritual disciplines reveal that that's what our heart is saying. 
And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, you neglect prayer. You neglect prayer. Prayer in its very essence, its very definition as a petition to God reveals that doing it is something that has to come from a humble heart because you're realizing that even asking somebody else for something reveals that you have to have some type of humility in your heart realizing that you can't do it on your own. And when self-sufficient pride overtakes our heart, we quit praying. We quit going to God because we believe we have it on our own. That we do not need His help. This is what brought the discipline of the Lord down upon David. And He reveals this to us in the next phrase. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face I was dismayed. Now this imagery of God hiding his face is extremely rich when we understand the way that the biblical authors understood God's face and the way that he would, uh, the way that what, what God was seeking to communicate through his face. Numbers 6, 22 through 26 talks about the Lord saying, uh, go tell Moses, go tell Aaron to bless the people of Israel and this is what I want you to tell them. Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, the the Hebrews and David as well, um, he understood that God's blessing is communicated in this figure of speech the Lord make his face shine upon you. That was the standard uh, Hebrew blessing. That for the Lord's face to be turned towards you and shining upon you was a visual picture of his blessing. And so for David to say that God hid his face from him is to say that God removed his blessing from David's life. Commentator William Plummer says, to hide the face is to be displeased. Applied to God, it denotes the withholding of those mercies which comfort us and the letting loose of those calamities which overwhelm us. God removed his blessing from David in order to discipline him for his self-sufficiency, which ultimately led to David's illness. And this is where David finds himself. You hid your face. I was dismayed. I was dismayed. Now this word dismayed communicates a a confusion. I don't understand why this is happening, but I don't think that it considers the full ramification of what David was feeling in this moment when God turned his face away from him. A couple other translations translate it this way. Scholar Alan Ross says, you hid your face, I was terrified. The message paraphrases, You looked the other way, and I fell to pieces. The New Living Translation says, You turned away from me, I was shattered. This action of God removing his blessing from David left him completely undone, shattered, falling to pieces, terrified, confused. 
And it came through this life-threatening illness that David experienced. God's discipline of David flattened him so that he had only one place to turn, which was back to God. And in this we see David's response to this season of suffering that he went through. The first is repentance and humility, verse 8 and 10. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy, verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. David's cry to God for mercy reveals his repentant heart after he had suffered under the discipline of the Lord. He's revealing to us what it looks like for somebody with self-sufficient pride to repent of their sins. It looks like calling out to somebody for help. It's the very opposite of being self-sufficient. It's saying, I need someone else's help, and this comes through prayer. Notice that. David cries out to God in a prayer for mercy. This goes back to prayer being the primary way we depend upon God and that reveals our dependence upon him. Not only does a lack of prayer reveal a self-sufficient heart, but a commitment to prayer is an expression of humility and need for God. That's what David is revealing to us here. That he had turned from his self-sufficiency and was repenting of his sin through asking God for help. Pinched in between this repentance and humility, we see David's appeal to praise God in verse 9, which also reveals his repentance and his humble heart. He says, what profit is there in my death if I should go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? What does this reveal about David's shift in mind, his shift in his mindset? It reveals that David is now concerned with praising not himself, but God. David is appealing to God to deliver him from his illness. And as he does so, it becomes clear that his primary concern has now shifted to God's glory rather than his own. God, if you destroy me, if you send me down into the pit, will the dust of my ashes, of of my body praise you? Will they sing of your name in the congregation? Will they tell of your faithfulness to the world? David's not bartering here with God. He's revealing his repentant heart that that he's saying, all right, God, I get it. My eyes should be turned to you in praise rather rather than to the exaltation of self. God's discipline of David has produced within him exactly what God intended, humility. Humility. David, God reminded David that he is but a frail man born from the dust and returning to the dust. God reminded David that he is the giver of any ounce of success or prosperity, that he is the giver of every good gift, and therefore is the only one who is worthy of praise and glory. That's what, that's what God wanted to bring about through this discipline. And we see here it coming to fruition. David got the picture after the loving discipline of his father and he was turned to praise. And then we see again the expression of this in verses 11 and 12. Humility, 
in David's praise to God. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This psalm ends with a climax of returning to the praise of God, returning to his praise, revealing David's change of heart, revealing that he understands where praise is rightly due, who ought to be praised. And David actually reveals that the reason that God delivered him from his illness was so that he could praise him and not be silent. Look at the transition between 11 and 12. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that for the purpose of my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. And this this phrase here, my glory, is, is the entire being of David. That all that I have would sing your praise for your deliverance of me. We see here David's humble heart as he returns to praise to God. David had fallen under the disciplining hand of God for his self-sufficiency and his pride. In a moment of prosperity, in a season of success, David said, I won't trust in God, I'll trust in my success. I'll trust in my prosperity. And God very graciously disciplines him with this life-threatening illness which brings David back to God. So in conclusion, we must consider then how this psalm fits into a season of success. Uh, But before we do that, um, this psalm talked a lot about suffering. And I know that many of you in here are not in a season of fall. You're not in a season of success. You're not in a season of prosperity, but you are in a season of suffering. And for the sake of clarity, I wanted to show you how this, what this psalm says about your situation and what it does not say about your situation for the sake of not being misunderstood. So for those of you in a season of suffering, whether that be a physical ailment or a spiritual struggle, it is important for you to recognize that every season of suffering you go through is not a result of personal sin. That's not what this psalm is saying. And we understand that not every season of suffering is God's hand of discipline on you to correct you. So what I don't want you to hear me saying is that you and your suffering, it's because of your sin. We understand that that's not true. The entire book of Job tells us that. That's exactly what Job's friends came to him and said. They said, you're suffering, Job, because you're sinning, because of your unrepentant sin. And then God comes and rebukes his friends and says, that's not true. So I do not want you to hear that I'm telling you that because you're suffering, it's because of your sin. I don't think that so, this psalm is telling us that necessarily either. We, see, we understand that God in his good and perfect providence will bring into our lives season of suffering. Whether it be his disciplining hand on us or just from his perfect and good providence. But the point of every season of suffering, whether it is God's disciplining hand upon you or his providence, is to bring you to an understanding of your need for him and to draw you into deeper fellowship with him. 
But we do have to understand that in David's situation and in our situation at times as well, we do find ourselves in a season of suffering because we have rebelled against God in our sin. But we shouldn't understand that season of suffering as being uh, vengeful anger from God, but rather loving discipline from him to bring us back to him. And so if you're in a season of suffering, this psalm calls you to examine your life, to examine your life for unrepentant sin, but ultimately to take this season of suffering as gracious from God, as loving from God, and to turn yourself back to him that you might dive into deeper fellowship with him. And now for those of us who find ourselves in a season of fall, in a season of success, prosperity, and blessing, uh, as I read through this psalm, I was really confused as to why in the world David wrote this specific psalm for the occasion of either the dedication of his house or the dedication of the temple to come. It seems very strange to me. It seems like a very odd psalm to be singing at the dedication. Um, I mean, I, I get the rejoicing, in the praise, that makes sense. But the, specifically the section about David's sin and God hiding his face from him, it doesn't seem like a psalm or a song that you would sing at the dedication of the temple or of the house, at least in my opinion. So I had to ask, why in the world is that the occasion for this specific psalm being written and sung? And I think that what David is doing is he's certainly offering up praise to God and revealing and showing his faithfulness and delivering him from this season of suffering into a season of success and prosperity. I think that David is specifically, he is doing that for sure. But I think that what he's also doing is warning himself, he's preaching a warning to himself and to the congregation. He's saying, we now find ourselves in a season of prosperity. Let us not forget that it was God who placed us there. Let us not take any glory for ourselves, but let us glory in God. And if you find yourself in a season of fall, in a season of success or prosperity this morning, that is the way this psalm functions for you, as a warning against self-sufficient pride. This psalm serves as a warning to you to return unto God the praise that is due his name for causing you to prosper. It is a call for you to humble yourself before God who is the giver of every good gift. And it is a call for you to examine yourself and pray that the Spirit would uproot any shred of self-sufficiency that exists in your soul. David is writing this psalm to preach to himself, having once been delivered from a season of suffering because of his pride in a season of prosperity. We must pray that the Spirit would continually uproot that in our lives and continue to call us back to praise to God who is worthy of all glory and honor. Pray with me. Father, you are so good to your children. You are so good to us in that you love us to the extent of not being willing to give up on us 
but you show your loving hand of discipline upon us and bring us back to yourself. Thank you. Lord, I pray that this psalm would sink down into our hearts and that that self-sufficiency that we have, that's in all of us, would just be uprooted. That your spirit would come and would, would cut it out of us, would remove it from our lives that we might be found to stand in complete dependence upon you. I pray that your spirit would come and would do this work in our hearts this morning through the remainder of this week in our days. I pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.